Hey everyone, welcome to Emmanuel Fellowship's podcast. This is Pastor Trent, the founding pastor of Emmanuel Fellowship, a church in South Minneapolis that exists to serve our city and to live for God's glory. Thanks for tuning into our podcast. We pray that this message encourages you to follow Jesus and to see his presence and power everywhere in your life. Hey, not all group texts are created the same. I mean, like, they're all created the same. You've got to sort of, like, put everybody's number on the list, and then you send them that first obnoxious message where you're like, should this be a group? Like, there's something about groups together on text where you're like, there's so much more gravity, right? Now I'm messaging all these people and keeping them on this thread. Now, maybe you've got group texts that are like, I could do without that, or I've silenced that a long time ago. Um, but perhaps you have ones like I have with a couple of my friends where, it, honestly, it is one of the most entertaining things, and like the banter, the laughter, the depth, the tone, like it's, whenever I see that thread go off, it does something in me. And I'll never forget, this is last spring, some, somewhere in the month of March, my phone went buzz, you know, and I look at this group text, and there the line reads, Stimmy just dropped, putting in my letter of resignation. And I read it again, and I was like, Stimmy, Stimmy. Oh, okay, so then finally, he goes, stimulus checks just dropped. I'm putting in my letter of resignation because now I have cash in my pocket and I'm free to do what I need to do. And of course, the, the, the gifts and the banter back and forth from that point were, were hilarious as people talked about what they were going to do with their Biden bucks, right? Like what, what the Kamala cash was going to buy them. And I don't know what you call it or even what your stance is on the policy of government stimulus checks. Like we're not here to debate policy by any means. But there's something about when you're given money, and I know it's not free money, all right? But when you get money that's not earned or deserved, there's something about it, right? I don't know. I mean, like, I think that's the intention behind stimulus checks, right? That you would then feel willing to spend it because you didn't have to earn it. And now, okay, there's a story behind stimulus checks. It's not like you're just getting free money deposited in your account for no apparent reason, right? We're in a certain type of financial crisis and in perhaps a global crisis in terms of a pandemic. There's a much broader backstory of what's going on in terms of the cash, but that's always the case. It's always the case that there is a much broader backstory. And I think that's especially the case when you start talking about forgiveness, which isn't unrelated to money. We'll see that later on. Forgiveness always has a backstory to it. There's more going on. And perhaps, as you've seen already from the long reading of Genesis, there is a bit of a backstory here with Joseph and his brothers. It's more complicated whenever forgiveness is sought, whenever forgiveness is given, or whenever forgiveness is withheld. There's something going on. So our topic today is forgiveness. Somebody say forgiveness. Hey, we're awake. Forgiveness? Forgiveness. The story of Joseph is a story of forgiveness like, like few other. It's a saga. And it actually probably has more parallels to government stimulus than we might care to make today. Like, we're not going to go there, okay? Um, but, uh, but Joseph is all about forgiveness. And most stories of forgiveness kind of feel like the saga that Joseph is. It's perhaps one of the longest stories in the entire Bible. It spans 13 chapters in the book of Genesis. I mean, 
one account of Jesus' life is only 16 chapters. Joseph gets 13, right? It's a big deal. It sets up so much in the scriptures. Forgiveness, however, though, is, is never simple. Forgiveness is not as easy as sort of just forgetting or maybe just letting it go. You've probably endured some kind of hurt that those simple statements don't quite heal. Um, and this is what the writers of our current study, The Gospel-Centered Life, say. They say that forgiveness is challenging. It's one of the most difficult things to do in life. And the deeper the wound, the more challenging it gets. I think they're on to something. We often don't think about forgiveness, but forgiveness is always sort of at play in many of our relationships. And if it's challenging to forgive, we have to ask ourselves, like, what do we do with that? Like, how do we forgive those who have hurt us? That's what we're going to answer today. And we're going to do it through digging into the story of Joseph. Because as the story of Joseph helps us see, it helps us see the whole theme of this section in the gospel-centered life, that the gospel that works in us is always going to work itself out through us. It works itself out in relationships. And so as we dive into Joseph's story, I want you to know that like, the relationships in his life and the relationships in your life matter. And they matter because forgiveness matters. The setting of Genesis here is what we want to look at first. I want to show you the setting and then the climax and then the ending of the story, okay? This is a simple flow. Here's the setting. Genesis is this grand story, 50 chapters. And as the name suggests, it's the story of beginnings. And it's the story of promises. God says some things are going to happen, and then you're waiting and, and hoping, will the promises actually come to pass? But it's also a story of people and especially people who need forgiveness. If you look at chapter 50 and the verses that surround it, you, right before chapter 50, verse 28, it says, all of these are the 12 tribes of Israel. And then the last verse in the book of Genesis, right? Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you. Sons of Israel, tribes of Israel. This is completely new language in the Bible. It hasn't occurred yet. And what's going on here is the writer's framing up from one phrase to the next a picture of us with a story that's taking place in the center. There's 12 tribes of Israel that their father dies, gives them burial instructions, and blesses them. And then at the end, there's 12 sons of Israel, and Joseph dies, gives them burial instructions, and blesses them. This is the frame. But in the story is this picture. Let's look at it, okay? Before we sort of examine the details of the scene, let's just catch you up on Genesis. And you can do that even through the text. Right? Genesis is the story of this family history. You have Jacob's death in verses 28 through 30. Maybe you don't know Jacob. But Jacob is the sneaky son. Right? He's that guy that stole his brother's birthright and his inheritance on top of that. He's the one who took it and then his brother wanted to kill him, so he ran for his life, right? And he ran, and on the run, God meets him as he's sleeping in an open field. That's all he's got. He's got a rock for a pillow. And he meets the Lord, and he says to the Lord, you're not my God, but if you watch over me, you will be my God. And then God watches him, carries him, 
takes him through years of his life to the point where he wrestles with God and then says, you are the Lord, you are my God. And in that wrestle with God, he's fundamentally changed and given a new name. Jacob is given the name Israel. So if you're confused, Jacob is Israel. And here we have Jacob's burial as the father of Israel, the father of a whole nation. And his story is not the most inspiring story. He's a pretty flawed person that created a lot of dysfunction and yet somehow came to trust God in the process of it. And then God used this incredibly flawed man to do amazing things, namely fathering the chosen people of God. So you have Jacob's death, then you have Jacob's burial, and then you have Jacob's brothers, verse 15 through 21. With, with dad gone, the brothers start to freak out. Because the story of the brothers is that they were jealous of Jacob's son, Joseph, who had these wild dreams that he would be the one who would have power as the younger brother in the family. He would be the one who would have position as the one who was the head of the household. And so they're like, hey, no way. Take this, stuff him in a hole, leave him for dead. And then they're not going to leave him for dead, so they decide to sell him into, into slavery in Egypt. That's what they did to him. But he works his way through Egypt, trusting the Lord and the Lord opening doors for him, all the way to him being appointed as the ruler and commander over the entirety of the country. The dreams come true. And the brothers come and are in need of him. And now, with dad gone, they're wondering, what is Joseph going to do to us? So Joseph's brothers, and then Joseph's burial. That's the flow of the whole passage. Jacob's, Jacob's death, his burial, Joseph's brothers, and his own burial. And it all sets up this great story of beginnings. An origin story written by Moses to give a kind of background to God's people as they were journeying into the promised land, unsure if God would keep his promises. It's a story of promises, right, that God is going to fulfill and has the power to do what he said he was due. And then, and then it's, a, of course, a story of people who are pretty broken, um, who are by no means perfect, and yet God chooses to work through them accomplishing his promises. I mean, if you've ever looked at your own family and gone, man, our history has got some, it's got some things in it, right? Then you should read the Bible, right? Because you look at the history of God's people and they got some serious flaws going on. But yet God chooses them and works out his saving purposes through them. It's as if from the jump, the Lord wants you to know that, that you're not too far gone, that you're not too broken, that you're not too lost that you're not too confused, that you're not too selfish, that you can have a place in God's story and that God works out his great purposes through imperfect people. Genesis is an incredible story. And here, I want you to see the climax all comes down to the family of faith that lacked faith. They needed forgiveness for all of their dysfunction to be reconciled to one another and to God. So let's look at the climax. I'm not going to teach all of the verses. I want to teach verses 15 through 21. Let me read it again. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that, that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil we did to him. And so they sent the message, just sort of like 
Joseph sends a message very respectfully to Pharaoh. They send a message through an intermediary very respectfully to Joseph, saying, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because of the, they did evil to you. Do you see the three terms? Three out of the four words for sin in the Old Testament. Sin, transgression, evil. The only thing that doesn't include there is iniquity, which usually means they're unaware that they, they did something wrong. But they were very aware they did something wrong. All right? And so they go, please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your fathers. Why are they fearful? This is the first question I have when I was reading through this. Like, why are they so afraid of their brother? They've relocated to Egypt, and their brother has given them everything they need. Food, housing, connections, all of it. Why are they afraid of him? Could it be that they're just being deferential here when they say, the God of your father or could it be, I think, given their fear and their reactivity, that it actually indicates their distance from the God of their father in the first place? Like there's something in these brothers here that just don't get it. They don't understand Joseph and his God, nor the God of their father. They do not yet know the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They operate out of fear instead of faith. When it seems like forgiveness has long been extended and the kind of reconciliation that they would have hoped for has been lived out for years at this point, what is going on in them? Well, I think they missed it. Like the brothers here are scared out of their wits because they've missed the whole Genesis story. I mean, Genesis is, is the story of the greatness of God, able to work over the peoples and to fulfill his promises. Like, Genesis is the story of God's goodness. He just delivers people when they're stuck and when they're in a bind. It's the story of God's grace. These people don't deserve it. Like, Jacob and Joseph have no merit for the kind of favor that they receive in this story. And yet, even with all of those, those categories for God shown through the grittiness of Genesis... The brothers completely miss their own history. They don't know the story in which they stand. I wonder if the same is true of us. Like, I wonder if we look around the room or around our gospel community and see the unfolding plan of redemption in other people's lives. Like, do we see the work of a God who's unfolding his grace in that marriage or in that parenting situation or in singleness or in a job transition? Do we see the kind of goodness of God delivering people when they're in tough spots? Are we encouraged by the unfolding story that God is at work among us? Or have we missed it in the way that these brothers miss it and they operate out of fear? The good news is if you don't live in faith, and you live in a bit of fear, you can meet the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob today. He is still working. He is still here. He is still unfolding good news in people's lives, in the lives of people in this room. Like, you can come to know, and here's how you come to know him. There's a significant shift that happens here. It's the key point of the story. Right, that, that Jacob's brothers are invited to make the shift in focus from what they have done to what God is doing. They're invited to shift from basing their whole life and their whole story upon what they have done 
to refocus it to what God is doing. This is the whole climax of the story, that God is doing something and that the people in the story have to get caught up in what he is doing. And that's why they struggle with forgiveness. And if you think about it, it's why you struggle with forgiveness. You struggle with forgiveness because what you have done or what others have done is more significant than what God is doing. The actions you take or that others have taken against you have defined you. You say, but Trent, like, I don't, I, I, don't, I don't think you know my story. Like, the things that I have done can't be forgiven. I, but Trent, I don't, I don't know if you know, know my story. The, the things that she has done to me, that he has done to me, are, are not forgivable. I don't, I don't think you like get this right. Like you're taking, you're making too much significance out of forgiveness because like it's not that big a deal. We can just move on and let things go. What I, it doesn't matter. What I do is more important than what others do. Do you see how we can start to see life through the lens of what we have done, rather than what God is doing? This is the shift that 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 must happen in order for forgiveness to be possible in the lives of these people. Um, I had the blessing of studying in Spain when I was making my way through college. And um, being where it was in the world, we took all these sort of excursion trips around to different places. And I'll never forget the time we were in Morocco for a long weekend, and we're with our tour group. It's like college students in Morocco, completely oblivious to everything, and um, staying with our group. And I remember as we sort of were working our way through the city and into this big market square, I was just bantering and having fun with a friend, and we, we lost track of the group. And all of a sudden, we looked up in the middle of a square in a foreign country that we didn't know at all. I don't even think we had phones back then. Like, and, and, and we can't see anyone everywhere. Up until that point, it was like, hey, let's look at this cool architecture, and we're going to go get mint tea in a minute. You know? like, but, but in that moment, we were just like, how, what do we do? Where do we go? How are we going to, like, and, and as we're walking around seeing with, we had been seeing the city before, but now we're seeing the city in a completely different way. And our eyes are opened up to like, hey, what would it be like if we were just left here? Like, what would it be like to actually live here as we're observing people in different ways? We're looking at the way that life works in the city in a different fashion. Our eyes were actually opened so that we could see things more accurately, even see reality more clearly. And, and what's needed to happen for forgiveness to take place in the brothers here is that they have their eyes open because they're seeing things around Egypt and they're seeing things in their life story, but they're not seeing things that God is doing because what they have done far outweighs what God is doing. So why are they afraid? I think they're afraid because they fear and they don't have faith. The fathers of the faith lacked faith. But the other question for me in this story is, why is Joseph so torn up the way he is? Did you notice? Like, he's blubbering. Like, he weeps. And don't make the mistake that because he weeps, he's weak. Like, this, this brother ran all of Egypt 
Like he was powerful. He had position. Like he, he was an incredible man of God. He, he lived in a foreign place that didn't share his faith, but stayed faithful to the Lord and even was vocal about the Lord. I don't know if somebody needed that today for their workplace. Anybody work in a place that's not favorable to the Lord? Struggle to be vocal about the Lord? Struggle to stay of integrity and live for the Lord? Joseph is that guy with the kind of backbone to be who he was no matter where he was and the kind of strength to face life on life's terms, which for him, life was tragic. And perhaps for you, for someone you know, life is tragic right now. And if that's the case, I do believe that Joseph knew the words to David's lines, his lyrics, that God does store up our tears in a bottle, that he counts our tossings. And Joseph was a man of tossings and turnings. He knew pain. And I think it was especially painful that his brothers perhaps told his father all of the junk that they did to him. Because up until this point in the story, it seems like dad never knew. But now they come to him and say, hey, we told dad. And the dishonor and the pain it would have caused dad. I think he's torn up because they finally asked for forgiveness, but he's been offering forgiveness for years. Now they finally get around to asking for it. I think he's torn up because rather than being free, they're guilty still. I think he's torn up because like, they, they, don't, they don't recognize his generous character. He's already given them so much. And I think he's torn up because they lack faith in the God that he holds so precious. There's just a wrestle going on, all of these things inside Joseph. And the only thing that he can do in the midst of the passing of his dad and the problem of his brother still is literally to weep. And that's normal in these sort of emotional moments in life. You can't quite pinpoint one thing. Hurt is sort of like that. It's kind of like a web that extends and starts hooking itself to all sorts of other things in life, entangling the whole. But what do we see in Joseph? Well, in the climax of the story, in the finale of the story, you see that when no man could imagine it, God is the one who's had all the strings. That's how one scholar put it. God is the one who's been at work doing something. He's been the one who's carrying a story forward, fulfilling his promises. Because all of Genesis, as you take it in, is the story where Adam's sons are parted by murder and death and split forever. Where Abraham's sons are split, one in faith and the other in fear, separated forever. Where Isaac's sons steal from each other and then part ways forever. Where Jacob's sons literally are being killed off for one another and, and never, never to be reconciled. And then all of a sudden, who comes on the scene? Joseph. And he breaks the pattern because of what God is doing in him and what God is doing through him. It's a story about what God is doing, not what they have done. And the inner transformation of Joseph is the very thing that works itself outwards in reconciliation for others. The gospel that works in you always moves through you. So the saga of Genesis comes to a close. Joseph says, I will provide for your little ones. He says, am I in the place of God? No, he's not. It ends with him being put in a coffin, 
which surely is he's not in the place of God because he ends embalmed and put somewhere in Egypt. But even in his laying to rest, right, he models a kind of rest in the promise of God and in the purposes of God that, that is gospel faith. And that's the key truth that Joseph has got amidst all of his pain, amidst all of his suffering, amidst all of his wrestling with the Lord. Like the deposit, the truth that he's got is what he gives to his brothers, that God has been at work in all the things that they meant for harm and for evil. What does it have to do with forgiveness? Well, Joseph in his story gives us the key principle for forgiveness. Forgiveness, forgiveness, when it comes to forgiveness, you can only give what you have. You can only give what you've got. And Joseph gives the very truth, the very core of what he has to his brothers. You, you can only give what you have, which is, Jesus said, listen, blessed are those who give, right? More blessed are those who give than receive. But when it comes to forgiveness, you can't give what you haven't received. And Joseph is the model of that. He's received some things from the Lord, and then he gives some things to his brothers in a way that works forgiveness and reconciliation that no one ever would have thought possible. The Apostle Paul puts it this way, right? As you have been forgiven in Christ, so forgive others. What you receive, what you've got, is what you need to give. Your experience of forgiveness is the very thing that empowers you to extend forgiveness. Forgiveness at work in you is the only thing that allows you to work forgiveness through you. This is the great truth of the gospel at work within us and then at work through us. If you were to put it another way, church, forgiveness is like this. Forgiveness runs on cash, not credit. Forgiveness runs on cash, not credit. You know the difference, right? Cash is money in your pocket. And when you go to buy something or when you go to get some services, it exchanges hands and the deal is done and it is over. It's, you get something from what you've already got. Credit, on the other hand, is something that you buy, but you haven't yet paid for, but have worked through someone else to pay for at some later date, and sometimes with a greater rate or a lesser rate of interest. Forgiveness don't work like that. Unless you have the funds, you can't forgive. Joseph had funds. He did. And he freely forgived. He forgived in such a way that absorbed the cost physically, emotionally, financially, that his brothers made him pay. It's always how forgiveness works. And forgiveness is never just a sort of forgetting and things go back the way they were. Things never went back to the way they were with Joseph. He's still the ruler of Egypt. They're still the ones falling down at his feet as servants. The dreams have come true. Forgiveness, even moreover, is something you can't give to yourself. The brothers probably have been trying to sort of get themselves at peace for years and years, and they can't give it to themselves till finally they're at their wit's end and afraid of him, and they come and ask for what they can only receive they can't earn themselves. Forgiveness runs on cash, not credit, and Joseph had all the funds necessary in the bank. But here's the reality. Some of you 
have gospel cash sitting in your pocket. And you haven't yet realized that there are some things in life that money can't buy. The cash is sitting there, and you haven't yet realized that, especially when it comes to relationships, there are some things that you can't save for or can't spend for to make happen that they only come by gift. And there's gospel cash in your pocket that's sitting there that could be extended for others, but it's not being extended because you think you've earned it rather than you've been given it. And the reality of the gospel is that you've been forgiven much in Jesus so that you could then give much forgiveness to others. Joseph says, am I in the place of God? And the answer is no, clearly not. He's not in the place of God. The coffin shows it to us, right? But though, Jesus, but though Joseph is not in the place of God, he is a light that shines to the one who is in the place of God. I hope you see the parallels, church. Right? Genesis is this story of the beginnings of God's people, but it is far from a finished story. It has no ending. And it points forward to a kind of better ending and a kind of better brother that we all truly need. Because if you look at Joseph, you see him as this incredible light shining to another brother who was sent ahead of the family. Another brother who suffered at the sins of others. Another brother who went into the grave, as it were, but he didn't stay in the coffin. He rose from the grave so that your sins might be forgiven and so that you might have power then to forgive. Joseph points to that better brother, the one whom we all need in order to be forgiven so that we might be freed to forgive. Who do you need to forgive? Because there's someone before we even started today that you've been thinking about, a coworker, a family member, a friend. And if you need to forgive someone, do you know the Jesus, that other brother who became, though he was rich, became poor so that by his poverty you might become rich? Do you know that other brother who, though he was free, became a slave so that you might become liberated? Do you know that other brother that, though he was blameless, bore all of your guilt, dying on the tree so that you might make the shift in thinking of not basing your life on what you've done, but on what God is doing? Do you know the other brother who offers a kind of forgiveness that changes enemies to friends? even to family. We need him. And we especially need him in this season. Until you put the gospel cash in your pocket, unless you can say, I have been forgiven, you'll never be freed to forgive others when the hurt is really deep. And so, forgiveness runs on cash, not credit. God is wrapping all of our hurts, our wounds, up into a story that is far grander. It's something he's doing. And it's more significant than what we have done or what others have done, even though those things hurt. I hope there's cash in your pocket and that you give it away in the next few months.
and see a kind of relational fruit that makes Jesus shine and makes you even more free.